0: In John chapter two, and uh, it is the wedding A Cana. So, how did we get here? Um, the wedding. When you think of a when you think of a wedding, what is like one word that comes to mind? Party. What was that? Party. party. Well, what'd you say, Michael? No, I said party, yeah, party. Yeah, that's what you said. Sure. Uh, so, I think also of joy, right? So, your it's a joyous occasion. We're excited for. The person or if we're getting married, hopefully like you were joyous at your wedding, right? So we uh, think of joy. See, Cana was approximately four miles from Nazareth, okay? So there's, there's a lot of close proximity to one another. I don't know if you guys grew up in Oklahoma, but I know when I was growing up here, there was like this, I don't know, this weird animosity between us and Arkansas, Oh, he must be from Arkansas, right? So when Nathaniel, uh, who is from Cana, says, hey, he must be from, or can anything good come from Nazareth? That's kind of what I think of. Like, that's how I picture it is like, I mean, it, from Arkansas. Like, what's that all about? So, um, but there's a close proximity. And so the people at this time, they didn't go very far right? I mean, there's no mode of transportation, like they're taking an airplane to get to Nazareth, or uh, they're hopping on the 405 to get to Capernaum, right? They'd have to walk, and so most of the time, they didn't go far. In fact, they they would be born, live, and die in the same town or the same vicinity. So Capernaum, or not Capernaum, Cana is a small village of about 50 or 60 people and then Nazareth, being about four miles away, it's a little bit bigger. It's about 400 people. And so the people in Cana were, were mostly family. So when, they're at a, when, when you have a wedding, like it's the whole family gets together, right? And so uh, it wouldn't be hard, uh, that much of a stretch for some of their family also to extend into Nazareth, right? To, to move over to Nazareth, to be in more of a commerce area, and so on. So this is the northern part of Israel, about 17 miles west of the Sea of Galilee, also known as the Lake, uh, Lake Tiberias, which is like the Greco-Roman word for it, Lake Tiberius, is the same as Sea of Galilee. So anytime that you're reading the Bible and you see Sea of Galilee, this is where it's at, Lake, Lake Tiberius, right there along Galilee and Capernaum. Uh, so Jesus' uh, m- first miracle, first sign happens here, and, it, and it's the first of the evidence that, J- that John wants to give. So John chapter 2, verse 1 through 12 says, The next day there was a wedding celebration in the village of Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples were also invited to the celebration. The wine supply ran out during the uh, festivities. So Jesus' mother told him, They have no more wine. Dear woman, that's not our problem, Jesus replied. My time has not yet come. But his mother told the servant, Do whatever he tells you. Standing nearby were six stone water jars used for Jewish ceremonial washing. Each could uh, could hold 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus told the servants, fill the jars with water. When the jars had been filled, or another translation says they filled them to the brim, he said, now dip some out and take it to the master's ceremony. So the servants followed the instructions. When the master's ceremony tasted the water that was now wine, not knowing where it had come from, though the servants knew, of course. He called the, he called the bridegroom over. A host always serves the best wine first. Uh, then, when everyone has had a lot to drink, he, he brings out the le- less expensive wine. But you've kept the best until now. The miraculous sign, this miraculous sign at Cana in Galilee was the first time Jesus revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. After the wedding, he went to Capernaum for a few days with his mother, his brothers, and his disciples. So Jesus arrives in Cana. Probably along the way, he meets Nathanael, who also says, hey, is there anything good that can come from Nazareth? Because they're, they're invited. He, he and his mother, his disciples, are all invited to this wedding. Why is it important that Jesus is here? This, I think that this shows the the personal and communal nature of the new covenant. This is Jesus saying, like, I'm not just about, I'm not just about the, the ritual, but I'm about the relational, right? And so when it comes to following Jesus, it's not about just the, the checking in and checking out at church, but it's, it's about the relationship that we have with a relational and communal God. And so that's what Jesus is telling us here is, is it, it, this whole story is telling us that Jesus wanted so much more for us to have relationship with him. And why was that a big deal? Because weddings were like the highlights of your year, right? And they didn't happen very often, and so everybody would attend. It was a big deal, and they lasted for at least a week. Uh, so turning, uh, turning down an invite was like insulting somebody. It would be like your brother turning you down for being your best man, right? Like, because your family, 50 to 60 people live in this village. If you were to turn them down, that that would be insulting. Like, you're not worth my time. I've got to watch the 49ers game. Like, that wasn't happening, right? So, we, uh, they, they would be insulted if they were to turn down. Now, I'm going to pause right there and kind of give a side note to this, Uh, and, and it's in regards to, to alcohol, because this is one topic that comes up, especially within this, because he turns water into wine. And I've heard it said that, well, it's, it's, not, it's not alcoholic, it's, it's grape juice. Or uh, there's also an argument out there that Jesus actually didn't even turn it into uh, wine, that it was just water. And the master of ceremonies was too confused and just thought it was wine, right? So, um... One thing that Michael said a couple of weeks ago is there's a difference between exegesis and eisegesis. And eisegesis is reading something into it that you want it to say. Okay? And it does not say that it was just grape juice. It is a fruit of the vine and it is referring to an alcoholic beverage. Now, it is diluted about three to four, um, four to one compared to what we have now, but you could still get drunk on it. So, Nowhere in the Bible does it condemn drinking alcohol, but it does condemn what? Drunkenness, absolutely. It condemns drunkenness, and that is, you, just some examples is Isaiah chapter 28, Isaiah 5 and 11, Ephesians 5, 18, they all talk about that, like it's, it's the drunkenness that God kind of detests, right? So, that being said, is, is alcohol like a sin? no. But, Paul calls us to have Christian maturity. A mature Christian will self-impose limitations on, to his or her Christian freedoms for the blessing and benefit of others. And that's what Paul came out to say is 1 Corinthians 8.13. He says, So if what I eat causes another uh, believer to sin, I will never eat meat again as long as I live. For I don't want to cause another brother to stumble. And what he's saying here is, is in this time, the butcher, he would usually like sell meats that were served to pagan idols uh, or that were, that were sacrificed for pagan worship, right? And so for some believers, this was a big deal. Like they did not want, it actually, it actually made them feel horrible or it made them feel like they were sinning because they didn't believe that it was right for them to do that. And what he's saying is, if that's the case, like I'm going to limit my freedoms so that I don't cause you to stumble. So that I don't cause anything bad towards you. So what Paul wants you to know is this, a mature Christian, a mature Christian is going is to self-impose those limitations for the blessing and benefit of others. It's, it's, it's asking this question. What can I do for the blessing and benefit of those around me. It's not about what I want. You see, when you accepted Jesus, no longer was this life about just you and your comforts and your happiness. No, it's about building the body, right? Jesus talks about us all the time being the body, working together. How can I help spur one another on? And I can't do that if I'm causing a brother to sin. So is alcohol... Uh, wrong. No, but there are those in our midst that struggle with that, and it has ruined their lives. So why would I allow that one thing to hinder somebody, or be a stumbling block for, uh, for somebody in their walk with God? No, I want to limit myself to, to help them in their walk as well. So I know that was a, that was a, a derailing of this, but it, it's, it's one of those things that it's, it's kind of taboo in the church to talk about, but God wants you to know that it's not, it, it's about more than just what benefits ourselves, what benefits others. So I think there's about four things that we can kind of draw from the wedding at Cana. And the first is this, is that the wedding at Cana points to something bigger. Number one, the wedding at Cana points to something bigger. When we think of this, we're like, oh yeah, Jesus turned water into wine. But there's a lot of, a lot of things that are within this story that we're going to unpack right now that I think, I think is going to be really encouraging to your faith and to your walk and the fact that Jesus had—he's the most incredible person you will ever meet because of all the things that, like, he had planned out. And so the first thing is that m- this miracle wasn't just a display of Jesus' ability. It was a sign of something better to come. Why was the wedding a big deal? It was a small town. Everybody knew it was coming. So there's a three parts to a wedding, okay? The first was a marriage contract. was signed by the, uh, the, the bride's parents and the groom's parents, okay? This actually happened one year before the wedding. So during that year, there would be a dowry paid to the, uh, to the groom by the bride's parents or the bride. And then there was a, a year-long betrothal period Kind of like our engagement, right? So engagement period, it was a betrothal period. And what he would do is he would go back to his father's house and he would build a place for them. Does that sound familiar? Uh, so he would build a place for them, right? And then he would also plan the wedding. He would plan all the details. That doesn't happen today, right? Um, oh, who's the guy that plans all the stuff? I, I can't even do it. So, but he would plan the entire wedding and, and the feast, and he would be responsible for all that stuff, right? So a year passes, and then he would go with his guys to the house of the bride, and they would be waiting. The bride and her maidens, they would go, and it would be a parade in the town. It was a huge celebration. Their marriage would happen, and then their celebration would happen for almost a week. Man, that's a really long party. I've been to some things that I'm like— can I check out now? And it's only been like two hours, so I, I love joyous occasions, but after a while, like that's a long time. Four, four, five, six days, that's a long time, but it's a big deal. So the wedding was something that was, was, uh, was looked forward to. So what if I told you this, is that Jesus's first miracle was just a foreshadowing of his last miracle that he will do, and that's the, the marriage supper of the Lamb. Check this out in John 14, 1 through 4. It says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God and trust also in me. There is more than enough room in my father's home. If this, uh, this were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? You see, there's so many times that Jesus talks to us about he's going to prepare a place for us, right? And then one day he will come back for us that, and, and he will take us to be his what? his bride, absolutely. We will be the bride of Christ, and then there will be a marriage supper of the Lamb where this st- uh, all this will pan out, right? So the, the wedding at Cana wasn't just about changing water into wine, but it was foreshadowing what he's going to do at the end of time, and that's the—I um, totally just rhymed there, and I didn't mean to. So um, the second thing that we find here is that our status doesn't equal access, Okay, our status doesn't equal access. And we find that in John chapter 2, verses 3 through 4, where uh, the wine supply ran out during the festivities. So Jesus' mother told him, They have no more wine. Dear woman, that's not our problem. Jesus replied, My time has not yet come. So Mary, mother of Jesus, tries to use her, uh, her authority as mother of Jesus, right? And she says, Jesus. I need you to do something. Did she expect him to change wine? No, she didn't know that he could do, that that would be what he would do, right? She had no idea. So she goes to him and says, hey, this is going on. He says, dear woman. Now, if I told my wife, woman? We're not doing that. Like that wouldn't go over well. That's actually not how it's actually in the, in the Greek. It's uh, the word is genai which means dear lady or madam, or actually, if you're from the south, it literally is closer to ma'am. Hi, ma'am. He literally says, ma'am. The the Greek uh, phrase that he says, he says, what is this to me to you? He's saying, why are you concerning me with this? And this, my concerns are not your concerns. And so what this means is, in this moment, Jesus is separating himself from Mary. It's not that he's saying, um, he's saying, I'm not concerned with this. He's separating himself from Mary because he's now got to be about his father's business, okay? It's not, it's no longer that he's concerned. And, and for Mary, this is, this is a mother who, tradition says that Joseph has has passed on, right? That the last time we hear about Joseph was when Jesus gets lost for three days in the temple. That's the last time we hear about Joseph. So they say that that Joseph probably has died by now. So Jesus has taken over, and he's the sole provider for the family. He is the carpenter, and they know him as such around Nazareth and, and town. And then he is also uh, the person that she would lean on, right? She would. I, I come from a single mom, and I know as the oldest son, like what it means to be emotionally, like a su- emotional support, right? And Mary's coming to Jesus out of knowing that he is very resourceful. Like he has this ability to just make things happen. So she's coming with a mother's heart saying, can you help them? Why? Because Mary probably had a hand in in preparation. She was most likely uh, related to the groom or maybe the bride, but she had some type of something to do with this. So that's why it was a concern for her. So if mom Upset. We're all upset, right? Or she would feel that anyway. That's how, that's how it was at my house. We just felt when mom was not—things uh, were not going well for her. So that's where she's coming from, and he just—he abruptly says, Ma'am, I, this doesn't concern me anymore. I'm separating myself from you. Now, that whole phrase where he says, My time has not yet come, here's a crazy thing. Here's a crazy thing. A lot of times we think when he says, "My time has not yet come," we're, he's saying, I, "I'm not going to. I'm not. It's not my time to do miracles yet." That's actually not the case. That's not the case at all. What he's saying is, "I'm not the bride. I'm not the groom yet. I'm not. My time to die isn't here yet." That's literally what he's saying. He's saying, "I'm not responsible for that. I'm not the one that has to provide the wine because I'm not the groom." Brings a whole new meaning to what this wedding's all about, and what Jesus is saying here. Why is it a big deal? Because for him to, for the, uh, for them to run out of wine, it was disastrous. It was embarrassing. It was saying that this groom who planned out everything, he can't provide for this bride. That's why it was a big deal to, uh, to Mary, is that it, it's a mark on this, this young man. It, it could, it could actually be sued by Mary's guests. So the guests of the bride could have sued him for not providing enough uh, wine for the celebration. That's crazy, right? And so for Mary, she sees this, and she's like, we've got to do something. But what I want you to see here is that as he's separating himself from his mother, what happens? She says, she says something else, and the third thing that I want you to see here is that faith is what moves Jesus to act on our behalf. And so, Mary first comes to Je- so did, does Jesus. So, does Mary persuade Jesus? Does she, uh, does she have some type of motherly influence over Jesus? Not at all. John chapter 2, verse 5 says, But his mother told the servant, Do what he tells you. You see, the first time that she comes to Jesus, she comes as mother. The second time she comes to Jesus, she comes to him as a believer. She comes to him in faith that he will move, that he will do something. Like, I don't know what he's going to do, but just go do what he says. And here's the thing is, like, in our life, Jesus, it, it, it takes a, a faith, right? Luke, Luke chapter, uh, chapter 8, 48, the woman with the issue of blood, Jesus says, Daughter, it is your faith that has made you well. When you look at the Roman centurion or the Roman officer who comes to Jesus because his daughter is sick in Luke, 17, or Luke 7, he says, Jesus, I need you to heal my daughter. And Jesus says, okay, I'll come with you. And he goes, no, you, you, you control everything. You can just speak it into existence and it will happen. And he says, I've not seen faith like this in all of Israel, right? So it is faith that unlocks Jesus to do something miraculous, the miracle didn't happen until Mary had faith that Jesus would do something. So our access, our, our status doesn't grant us access, but our faith unlocks Jesus' action. And the fourth thing is this, wine represents the new covenant with joy at the center. John 6, 2, 6-7 says, Stand near, standing nearby were six stone water jars used for Jewish ceremonial washing. That's a hard word, I get it every time. Each could hold 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus told the servants, "Fill the jars with water. When the jars have been filled, he said, Now dip, now dip some out and take it to the master's ceremonies.'" So the servants followed his instruction. What do we see here? Uh, water was a cere- uh, water for ceremonial hand washing. Was a big deal in Jewish uh, ritual cleaning tradition. They did it for many things, not just before they ate, but uh, even before prayer and um, after going to the restroom. So yeah, even if if you don't wash your hands, even the Jews did that back in the day, right? So um, <laughs> I don't know where I was going. So anyway, um, it was a it, it was it was very ritualistic that they would do this, and it was it was almost not even out of necessity, but out of religious right and almost duty. So for uh, Jesus to take this water that was used for cleaning and change it into something else was where the miracle began. So the act of turning water into wine signified human participation. It's you do what you can do and Jesus will do the miracle, right? So he used servants. Did the servants create the wine? No, they were just the bringers of the wine, right? They were just the bringers. What has Jesus called us to do? We're not the, we're not the creators of joy. We're the bringers of joy. Human participation. You do what you can do, and I'll do the rest. Faith is that way. Like, faith is doing what we can do. I have faith that you can do this. Now, God, I need you to act. Also, I pointed out earlier that it's all about, uh, the, the servants filled the, the pots to the brim, right? And, I, and, it, and it's important that you know that they filled it to the brim, so that you know that Jesus didn't go over there and add something to it, and it'd be like a diluted wine. Like, it was important for you to know that it was filled all the way to the brim. Why? Because that's the transforming power of God. See, they had this this spiritual ritual thing that they did, and Jesus was taking away the old way of doing things, and he was representing the new way of doing things, right? The wine didn't just represent uh, uh, bringing something to the table. It was, it was representative of what Jesus was doing, what Jesus had in store, and that's huge. They had this water that they would use they put it in these stone pots because they put them in stone because it would keep it clean because if you put it in clay pots what happens it gets dirty so they would have these stone pots they would keep them clean that was a big deal but Jesus in this simple act was show- showing to the servants and the disciples that it's not i've got a new way of doing things i've got a new way i've got a new covenant that's to come Jewish tradition, in Jewish tradition, wine is synonymous with joy. Psalm, uh, Psalm 104, f- 14 and 15 says, You allow them to produce food from the earth, wine to make them glad. Right? Gladness or joy. There is a, um, wine was a symbol of perpetual joy. There's an old rabbinic saying that says that when the wine runs out, the party's over. Or the joy is gone. See, water turned into wine. This is, Jesus. this is Jesus showing the disciples and those servants that he's the source of everlasting joy. He's the source of everlasting joy because that 120, 150 gallons of, of wine that he, that was over and abundant more than he needed to provide. But why did he do that? Because he wanted to make a statement to those disciples that I am the source of your joy. I'm the source that you're looking for. So Jesus commissioned us to not be the source of joy, but to be the bringers of joy. When the master of ceremony tasted the wine, he said it was the best wine. And here's the other thing that I want you to catch, is that is that Jesus' joy is greater than any joy that man can create. The joy that you find there it's greater than any joy that you could, you can bring upon yourself. It's greater than any joy that you can create. Matthew 28, uh, 26, 26 through 28, and I know that's a mouthful, but it said, while they were eating, Jesus took bread, gave thanks to it, and broke it, and gave it to his disciples, saying, take and eat. This is my body. Then, uh, then he took the cup. The cup was full of Wine uh, gave thanks and offered it to them, saying, Drink it, uh, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. You see, Jesus describes the crucifixion as a cup of his suffering. You see, so if wine equals joy, joy begins where Jesus' blood spilled out and where suffer- his suffering began. Like, ju- this, the joy of the Lord is my strength. The joy of the Lord starts where his blood was poured out, and that's transformative, and that's the good news. That's amazing. I don't know if that—I don't know you guys get excited about that. These guys are probably glad that I'm done talking about this, because I've been telling them all— How incredible is this, that that this thing comes all the way around. Jesus turned the water water into wine, and the wine represents, and then when he goes to the Last Supper, he's saying, not only is he saying, hey, this is the representative of my blood, but it's also the representation of your joy. Now Jesus uh, goes to prepare a place for us, and one day we'll come back again, and then guess what? His time will come he can tell Mary, now my time has come. Now it's my time to be the the groom. It's my time to bring my bride back to us. And that's something to be excited about, right? Like, man, how incredible. And that's just one of the instances that John, that's just one of the signs that John provides for us as evidence that Jesus is who he says he was. John 2, 11 says this uh, miraculous sign at Cana in Galilee was the first time Jesus revealed his glory and his disciples, what? Believed him. They believed in him. If they didn't believe in him before, they believed in him now, right? This thing was so much bigger than we even think, we could even think or imagine. Jesus' first sign was also primary, so that the word that used there for uh, for first also means primary. So it's the primary because it points to the new covenant that Jesus has. The old is gone, the new has come. I think Paul said something like that. The old way is gone, the new has come, right? So who saw the miracle? Jesus, uh, the disciples and the servants. And the disciples believed him. Jesus is the Messiah that was, uh, that will transform our lives And bring us everlasting joy. And that's something to be so thankful for. And that's the good news that we are commissioned to be bringers of, right? That's the joy. That's the good news that we're commissioned to be bringers of. And so that's our job. That's what we do from here, right? Get excited about the word and go take it to those around us. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for tonight. I thank you that, God, you are our everlasting joy God you are our sustainer you are everything that we need when life comes around and 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 life gives us those ups and downs God you are our constant you are our everlasting joy and that's something to be excited about it's it's something to be excited and 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 want to tell others about when we have good news God we want to share that with others. And so God, I pray that that would be our heart and our minds. God, I pray that you would help us to be those individuals that that have this passion, this desire to share the good news. Because how will they know unless we go and tell them? God, you are so good and so great, and I pray that you would give us a passion and a desire to see people's lives changed for your glory. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.